All right, well, uh, ACSC family and uh, parents, supporters, alumni, anybody watching this, uh, we're grateful that you're watching another one of our, of our summer uh, interview series for 2020. And I'm here with Adam Paw and Jasmine Turner. We're outside of Adam's house. He's been grateful to let us come over. And we are, not really. <laughs> I, I'm just vibing with it. Yeah, yeah, he likes it. Uh, we're at North Atlanta Church of Christ, and we are, uh, um, Jasmine and, and Adam are on staff here. And so we're going to have a conversation about substance abuse and particularly what it looks like in college students and, if, and how you can recognize it in yourself and maybe even how you can recognize it in friends and help them and also how our ministry can, can better serve uh, uh, people who are struggling with substance uh, abuse. And so um, these, uh, uh, Jasmine and Adam have a lot of wisdom to drop on us. I'm just going to have a few questions to, uh, um, to guide the thoughts and to move it along. But first... I uh, want to hear about you. Just found out something about a national championship. Uh, so, Jasmine, tell us about that. <laughs> yes, okay. Well, I would love to. Um, you know, I played basketball back in college. Um, I'm not going to name what year that was, but <laughs> when I did play basketball, my first year of basketball, we won a national championship. We, it was like probably the most exciting, exciting time of my life. Really? Mm-hmm. What college? Uh, College of DuPage was this school. It was a school based in Illinois, Glen Ellen, Illinois. Oh, nice. Mm -hmm. So she likes to brag. I just have to say this. She likes to brag about this national championship because we have a a little debate at our church about who would win in a one-on-one game. And he just cannot admit that he knows that I will whoop. And every time we have this conversation, she pulls out her national championship (laughs) talk. And so anyway, that's... Just, just for the listeners out there, just know that that's what's behind here. She's just trying to front on me right now. So just, just so you know. <laughs> Can I throw in one more thing yes. for the listeners out there? Right back there in this parking lot, I was set up. I literally dunked on Adam. Like literally, there's video footage, proof, everything. I dunked on Adam. <laughs> I was set up. I was. In eighth and ninth grade, 1996, I'll name the year. In 1996, I was the defensive player of the year, green team. Okay, so wow. I don't want to hear nothing about national championships. <laughs> yeah, you have a clean fame. <laughs> so, uh, what's your title at North Atlanta Church of Christ, Jasper? Yes, I am the recovery minister here at North Atlanta now. All right, mm-hmm. and and you've been in that role, you said, for a, a little over a year or so? Yes, I've been uh, the sole recovery minister for about a year, but both Adam and I, I started back in 2017 as an intern and uh, interned until 2018, and then we both were the anchor minister and uh, in 2019, last year, I became the sole anchor minister. And so Anchor is the name of the recovery ministry? The anchor ministry, okay. yes. Um, and Adam, what's your position here? I'm the adult discipleship and connection minister here. So I uh, started five years ago, was the anchor minister for a few years, and then I transitioned to the adult discipleship and connection minister. Awesome. And so, um, and y'all can decide who goes first, but how did, how did you get involved in recovery ministry? How did it become a passion of yours to where now it's part of your, your job is to, to serve people in that way? Okay. Um, well, I'll say it like this. Um, when I introduced myself, I introduced myself as Jasmine, being a person in long-term recovery. And so uh, what that means for me is that it has been a little bit over nine years since I've used any drugs, alcohol, or my altering substances. And I remember my darkest days. And then some that turned into my lighter days, and I just have a passion for helping others the way that someone else helps me, you know, uh, the, the way that someone else helped me and still helps me actually until this day, including uh, Adam right here. But I love to um, inspire hope, you know, because, uh, you know, when I came in, I was broken and I was scared and I was lonely and I was angry I was I mean just so many different feelings and I didn't have any hope I didn't love myself I didn't know um you know if I could even do this recovery thing but I had people in my life who believed in me um who told me that they loved me who supported me even when I didn't know how to support myself and so if it happened if recovery happened for a dope thing like me, then I know that it can happen for anyone else. So that is where my passion comes from, to just help as many as I can. If they can just make it one more day, if they can just make it one more day, you know, that's what it's all about. Everything that I do in life, it's all worth it because I just know how it feels. And so for you, your, your passion for recovery ministry comes from 
just your own personal experience and how people have helped you yes. and want to help others the way that you were helped. Mm -hmm. um, before we get to you, Adam, you mentioned before we started recording just that you wanted to talk about the language we use mm -hmm. to, uh, for people who are, are struggling with substance abuse. Will you talk about that for a minute, just yeah. that outline, uh, at the beginning of the conversation? Yes. So uh, if you notice, when I just did that little introduction, I said, my name is Jasmine, and I am a person in long-term recovery, opposed to my name is Jasmine, and I'm a recovering addict. Um, now, if I'm in, like, any 12-step groups, I will do as they do in the 12-step groups. But if I'm talking to a group of people who, you know, might not know much about recovery or, you know, haven't experienced the recovery life too much, I want to say my name is Jasmine and I'm a long person in long-term recovery and then follow that with, and my recovery has afforded me and name some good things because when you say addict, the mind automatically goes to what one have might have seen on TV or to just stereotypes pretty much about around that word addict so it's like you know changing up the wording a little bit just to give it more of a positive light because recovery is possible you know so you don't want to just automatically put addict 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 or there are even other words um, or saying and phrases as well that we can uh, I can't think of any right now but as they come I'll uh, you know I'll set, let you know but um, it's just changing up the wording a little bit just to give it a more um, to direct the mind in a positive direction. That's good. Thank mm -hmm. you. And Adam, what about uh, your background? How did yeah, you Yeah, so I uh, got my master's of social work. I went to Abilene Christian for my undergrad. Uh, so my master's at University of Texas Arlington. And uh, in the social work field, you know, we just, you, you, uh, you study clinically how you support those who are struggling with different, different parts of their life, different things. So addiction is one of those. And I just found myself in the field. Um, I, I started in school social work and it just kind of, it honestly just kind of happened. I got into prevention. I started speaking in schools and through speaking in schools, I just started counseling people, uh, specifically teenagers and young adults who struggle with, with addiction. And so the disease of addiction is the way that I, that I call it. And so just started, that's kind of what started it. And um, it's a long story about how I got from there into ministry, but I got in the ministry that this is the perfect place for me to land was as the recovery minister because it took my kind of my education and my professional experience and it married it with my faith. Okay. And so um, I will say this though, my best friend, what brought me to Jesus was my best friend in high school struggled with the disease of addiction, weed every day, drank constantly, and his life was just was falling apart and so much so that I lost track of him. And um, I was invited to a, it was a, it was a, I think it was like an outreach Bible study. I'm not sure. I didn't know how shady Christians were back then. So like, I was like invited to go play ping pong at someone's house. I know then like a youth pastor gets in like, bang, like, you know, so, uh, and then, and uh, he was like, hey, let's pray for someone that you're worried about. And so I hadn't really prayed before in my life. And so I prayed for my buddy. His name's Brent. Um, I prayed for my, my buddy, Brent that God would deliver him and save him and you know from what was going on in his life and uh, the next day I hadn't talked to Brent in over a year and the very next day Brent called me up and was like hey I want to give my life to Christ <laughs> and I, he's like I want to be a pastor well now this man is a pastor in Minnesota has this has an amazing testimony still doing God's work yeah. um, and so when I really think about what got me into this it was all the way back when I was 16 praying for my buddy Brent and watching God deliver him from that and the impact that's had on my life. Awesome. Mm. Yeah. Well, so um, at the very beginning, uh, you've used the language of, of disease of addiction mm. and people who are in recovery. Right. But uh, we throw around the word addiction a lot. You're addicted to your phone. You're yeah. addicted. You know, oh, I'm addicted mm -hmm. to right. coffee. I'm addicted. Yeah. You know. And we use this word. Um, but how would you define an addiction, particularly in this context? Yeah. Yeah. That's good. You want to go first? Uh, sure. I would say I. My personal belief is that an addiction is more of a brain disorder. Um, you know, I don't think like a person wakes up and says, okay, I'm going to go out and become addicted to alcohol or just become addicted because the consequences that come along with becoming addicted to drugs and alcohol, you know, are so bad. But I think it's more of a brain disorder. It's like, or a disease, as Adam uh, said, you know, and it's something that needs to be treated and constantly treated. So I would say uh, more of a brain disorder than just a choice to 
go out and continually do. Mm -hmm. yeah, not, not a moral failure. Not a moral failure. There you go. Uh, yeah, not mm -hmm. a moral failure. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I, I don't. This isn't going to answer your question directly, but like whenever I work with young adults, there are some questions I would ask to help know if we have a problem here, right? So we talk about yeah. tolerance. You know, how, how has your have your tolerance has the tolerance increased over time? You know, so maybe you started. Uh, with one or two beers, and now that's increased to four, six, and then so on and so forth. And you know, you need you need more to get the same feeling. You know, your body can tolerate more. So you know, we're looking for tolerance to know if we have an issue. You know, we look for like negative consequences. Mm -hmm. Have you had negative consequences? And you know, are you still continuing to use even though you've got a DUI, even though you've been kicked out of school, even though your parents have kicked you out, or even though everybody around you like, hey, bro, you got a problem, and you continue to use, like, so, you know, have you had some negative consequences and continue to use? You know, do you, like, spend time obsessing and planning and thinking about it and, you know, those kind of, like, things? Um, you know, um, I, you know, we talk about, like, the allergic reaction. Um, do you, have you ever heard that mm -hmm. during using the yes. allergic reaction? Like, so sometimes you'll, like, be talking with someone, and they'll be like, man, when I took that first hit, when I took that, it's like, kind of like off, off to the, the races. races yeah like it was just and so like so, so you when you just explain that a little bit more like uh just like the first drink yeah just in right just first now that's not for everybody now everybody has that that point where it hits that but for some people for whatever reason uh they get that they take that hit and it's it's a different feeling it's a different high and they just and they have to just keep going back to it regardless of consequences regardless of how much money they have to spend like they're going to keep on going back to it so these are the kind of questions that I'll ask to kind of start seeing, you know, do we, you know, what is this, is this, is this become more of a problem for us? Is this moving to more of a disorder, hmm. you know, or is this, is this something that is not at that level yet? And so I'll use, I'll use those kind of questions to help start defining what, what, what's going on. So how do you, uh, um, so do you use those questions uh, to kind of distinguish between, I guess an unhealthy use of just say alcohol versus mm. someone who's uh, say, have an addiction to alcohol. Sure. Yeah. I mean, since we're talking yeah. about college students, obviously yeah. the abuse of alcohol is pretty rampant right. on college right. campuses. Right. Right. Um, but a subset of people who are are using it, uh, right. misusing it, right. uh, you know, messing up their life right. with it, a subset right. of those would be addicted. Mm. Is that how yeah. you think about it? Like, well, I think I think that it could be either or. I mean, I think someone could have a really bad night um, and, you know, and that have some major consequences for their life and alcohol play a major part in that. I don't think that necessarily means that person it has a disease of addiction, but of course it could. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, you know, trying to draw the line can be kind of tricky. I, I like to say this, like, are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? Like, are you just at that point where it's like, I think about the prodigal son, they, they wake up, they look around, and they're like, I'm just, I'm in the pigsty here. Like, my life has gone, gone, you know, has, has gone bad, and I need to make a change, you know. And so I don't personally spend a lot of time trying to convince someone they have a problem. I want to spend time asking them questions and asking God to help reveal, hey, we're, we need some extra assistance here. Okay. I know uh, one thing that I, you know, when I'm working with someone, I just plain out ask them, you know, tell me some ways that your life, that you might feel powerless over this, you know, and by that, I mean, like, you know, sometimes you wake up in the morning, I can even say for myself, um, when I was in my uh, active addiction, you know, I would work a job and I would get a paycheck and then I would say, okay, only this much of it I'm going to spend on my stuff and everything else is going to pay bills and, gonna, and I'm not going to touch it and I'm going to save and I'm going to do this. And I would start off with that much but then the obsession, I couldn't stop thinking about it and I just wanted more and it's just like I would go and get it before I know it and before I know it the whole check was gone and then unmanageability as well um, you know if I started to miss work or if I started to be late for classes or um, you know um, things with my son if I just couldn't manage the things in my life and I really that's how I knew I really had a problem that's how I knew that um, I needed help, that it was something that I needed to go to the next level for help for is because I was powerless over it. That's all I could think about. That's all I, like, I would go to sleep and my mind would just be on that. And if I didn't have that, I wasn't, I, I, I was irritable and I was angry and I was just so many different emotions that then once I got it, then it took me to a, like, I feel more comfortable being um, 
under the influence or whatever, but that powerless, powerlessness and unmanageability is a huge way to tell and ask a person that. And sometimes, you know, you might get the whole story because we don't like to admit that we're powerless. We don't like to admit that we're, um, uh, might not be able to manage life. Uh, but once we are able to humble ourselves and admit that that's the first step to, uh, recovery. Let me ask you a question about that. You know, sometimes it's almost a cliched um, scene that you see in movies or on TV of, of, say, someone who's addicted to alcohol and their friends are saying, you have a problem, and, and the person says, no, I've got it under control. Mm-hmm. So internally, you're, you're saying that there's a feeling of un, unmanageability and powerlessness, um, but is there also an internal conflict? Do at times you feel that powerlessness, but there's a, a sense of, of, of shame, so you you put a, a front out to people or do you go back and forth about, I really have it under control, but you don't, I mean, it can be both and, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think it can be both and, uh, you know, and then there's pride, you know, it's like admitting that I have a problem. Then once I admit that I have a problem and that I need help, then, you know, my family is going to know, my, you know, and my friends might know. And so there's that shame of that. And then there's pride. So, um, that's sometimes one of the biggest hindrances of someone getting help is, I think, shame and pride. And it's like, you know, change is also, you know, it's different. So if I admit that I need help and I admit that I need to go into a treatment center or talk to a counselor or talk to someone about this issue, then I might be looked at in this certain way. I might not be treated the same way. So there's a whole lot that can come into that that will prevent a person to, uh from really admitting the powerlessness. And um, sometimes it's just denial, you know, I think. I think it's just like, you know, like you were saying earlier, I got this, I can handle this myself. We want to be superwoman or we want to be superman um, and thinking that we can handle it all by ourselves. But the disease of addiction is bigger than us. It's much bigger. Like they say, it's cunning, baffling, and powerful. And it's very cunning, baffling, and powerful. Cunning, baffling, and powerful. It's like very tricky. So earlier you guys were talking about, he said something about that first drink or whatever. Like, so for someone like me, I have a little bit over nine years in recovery and I'm grateful for that. However, um, my drug, I'm just going to keep it real here. My drug of choice was heroin. And I started off with weed, though. And when I was in high school, I started off smoking weed. And, you know, then I started off drinking a little bit. And that was my thing. And even going into college, I was, you know, still smoking and I was drinking. And that was that. And then I was drinking so much and I was smoking so much where it stopped affecting me. Like I wasn't getting that same feeling that I was at the beginning. And I was able to like, you know, we would go out and, you know, after you know, school or, you know, whatever little parties uh, at night, we would go out and, you know, drink and smoke. But I was able to keep going after everybody else was done. And I was like the designated driver, but I was drinking and smoking the most. (laughs) But, and I'm really serious. I was the designated driver, but that right there, but even in the moment though, I didn't know that I had a problem. I didn't really, now that I'm able to look back on it, I, I, I know that that is where my disease was just starting to really, really escalate. Um, and then, so because I couldn't, I, I wasn't feeling those drugs or those alcohols or the, the weed and the uh, alcohol, then I graduated to something else because I wanted to, because different things in my life I didn't want to feel, you know, um, whatever those things were, I didn't want to feel those feelings. So I said, okay, I need to try something else to try to get rid of those feelings. And today I know that even though my drug of choice had become heroin, like my number one today, I know that I can't touch weed. I cannot touch alcohol. I can't touch any drug because I believe that even if I just took a hit off of a joint, it would trigger something inside of me that would eventually send me back to alcohol and then maybe send me back to heroin because I just believe that that's for me, you know, but I can't, I can't try anything, you know, um, I say, Oh, maybe I can go and have a drink or something like that. No, I cannot. I don't want to, because I believe for me that it would lead me. And, and, you know, sometimes they say that you pick up 
right where you left off. So wherever I stop using that, they say you'll pick up right there. And I don't want to be that person again. I don't want to go back there. So uh, I just choose not nothing, nothing. Let me ask you, uh, and I'm sorry to sideline you so much. As uh, much as possible. Yeah. It's all good. <laughs> but they, uh, um, you said that when you, you, when you graduated beyond weed and alcohol, that looking back, you can see that that's when the problem really started. Mm-hmm. But when was the moment that you realized you had a problem? I realized that I had a problem. I was in school. Um, I had tried school. I don't know who's all going to see this video, but anyway, so I'm thinking about, should I say this or should I not? But anyway, <laughs> just, keeping it, just keeping it real. <laughs> yeah, so remember that. But uh, You say school, you mean high school, college? No, now I'm talking about college. college okay. So um, I got, I was very, very good at basketball. So even after the first, not, I'm not talking about the um, school where I won the national championship. After I won that national championship, I got three basketball scholarships to three different schools. And drugs and alcohol, um, drugs and alcohol, I just finished and got my bachelor's in business management uh, with a focus on human resources in 2018. Um, My first year of college was 2000. Uh, So drugs and alcohol took over my life in college. And... You know, I lived the college experience and all of that, but the disease of addiction was so prevalent and so strong and so much bigger than me. My first love was basketball. My first love was basketball. And I'm talking about I eat, sleep, drink. Like the way I said I was thinking about heroin or whatever all the time, that was my love for basketball. I would wake up in the morning, and I lived in Chicago where it snowed. I would go out there in the snow, and I would play basketball. It was like everything to me. And But on the college campuses, all the parties, I was able to drink everybody under the table. I was able to smoke everybody under the table. But because of those decisions, uh, because of, you know, using, I lost those scholarships. You know, I lost those scholarships and then I chose to go back to my familiar, go back home. And then because of the shame and the guilt that came from that. So when I was back home, you know, of course, I indulged like even more because I didn't want to feel that I just lost a whole basketball. I love basketball, but I just lost a whole basketball scholarship. But then somebody else would call me because they remember how good I was. And then I would go and try again. Hmm. Right. We'll make it so far, you know, but I was still smoking it. And like, I, I can do this. I got this this time. See, I know what I did last time. So I know how to go about it this time. Mm. I'm not going to mess this one up. This is my second scholarship, right? Third school, third college, second scholarship. I got it. I remember how I did that. So now I'm just going to finagle it a little bit differently this time. So, um, I forget where we're going, but, no, yeah. You, is that basically how you started to know that you had a problem? Yes, that's the question you asked me. Yes, yes, that's how I knew. When I started really losing my scholarships and just really, I, my life was unmanageable, and I was powerless over um, using drugs and alcohol. Would you say that that's a, a, a pretty common, um, uh, I guess, pattern, that it's, it's not so much the to the amount you were using but it was the effects in your life that that caused you to recognize it was a problem does that make sense like yeah yeah uh, is that is that a, a, a common point in people's story? yeah i mean from my experience yeah i mean when I, when i counsel people that's what helps them start realizing something's wrong you know their kids start being taken away they lose mm-hmm. scholarships you know legal issues job issues you know, family, um, I, we'll probably talk about this in a little bit, but talking about how we support people, like, you know, when our, when our enablers in our life stop being enablers, yeah. uh, and they start letting uh, the person feel the effects of their choices, mm-hmm. that allows people to get help quicker, because that, because, yes. yeah, they need to start feeling some of the consequences to what they're, what they're living. And we definitely um, need to talk about that. Yeah, so, um, so yeah, for, from my experience, I feel like, like, I can't tell you how many people have said, hey, God saved me through the sheriff's department. You know, kicked in the door, you know, saved my life via going to jail. You know, so, yeah, in a lot of ways, 
that having those hmm. those negative consequences is what helps people kind of wake up and go, okay, I need, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yeah. I need to do something different. That's it. Um, so, 18 to 25 year olds, kind of college young adults. Um, what are the? Uh, I'm trying to not ask a dumb question. Like, what What are the common substances mm, that people yeah. that that you see uh, people struggling with? addictions with in that age range well i mean i mean obviously alcohol is number one right and marijuana is number two so can i stop you on that because you've already said this but um i think a lot of people wouldn't see marijuana as something that one gets addicted to um and so uh explain that for a second well i mean it's from my opinion clinically i I don't i think i don't think that's true i think you can be addicted to to marijuana um and i've heard plenty of personal testimonies to to confirm that but again can you build up a tolerance to to marijuana yes can you have negative consequences to your life and keep using the marijuana yes can it become unmanageable and can it can can it consume your thinking yes you know so there's it can you can use all the kind of criteria questions you want and marijuana can still fit uh, Mm -hmm. in that so for me the answer is yes you can be addicted to marijuana i don't know if you would answer the same. Oh, yes. I, I 100% agree. And I know one thing that makes marijuana, especially in today's world, is because it's becoming legal in certain states. But in my personal opinion, like I've already told you, you know, that's what I started off with, with marijuana. But then eventually, you know, I was looking for that calm, but I wasn't getting that calm any, anymore. Um, you know, it, it was like I woke up, had to smoke, uh, you know, to go to bed, to to come to a meeting like this to just sit down and talk to people to function and so sometimes that's what we need to ask you know just ask those questions like it doesn't matter what it is if it's um cigarettes if it's weed if it's alcohol like like how much of a control does fill in the blank have on my life and if it has like some kind of control where i have to and i can't function without it then you know we might need to kind of look into that so in, in your recovery ministries, you would you would work with people. Oh yeah. Remind, let me ask Lots you about uh, uh, pornography, mm-hmm. uh, sex addictions. Mm-hmm. Would those fall into the same? Of course, yeah. I mean, go go check out the website uh, fightthenewdrug.org. That's a great website. It talks about pornography as an addiction, doing the same things, changing the brain structure the same way that heroin changes the. Is that brain the one structure. Lamar Odom's involved with? Is that the one? It might be. Okay. I think it might be. Um, 95% sure that's the one Lamar Odom's part of. But, yeah, great, great website, great resources. So, yeah, now, uh, you know, so, like, there's great, I mean, we have we have groups that are offered through our counseling center for for uh, sex addiction. Um, you know, uh, Celebrate Recovery mm-hmm. is, a, is a recovery ministry that will offer support for that as well. So, yes, absolutely, that's, that would fit in the category of, uh, of addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, we were talking about common substances, so you said alcohols up there, marijuana. We were talking about uh, sexual addictions and pornography. Um, what else um, that you see frequently in 18 to 25 year olds, particularly college students? Pills. Pills, yeah. Pills and, uh, yeah, like, like Xanax. Uh, okay. I know is a big one. I was just recently working with. Uh, someone and just said that that was the and this person was in between that age range that you're speaking of and they just said that you know all my friends were doing it you know so um xanax and like opioids opiates opiate pills mm-hmm. yeah i mean you know people sometimes people are using those uppers so they can stay up and study you mm-hmm. know, and keep going um or yeah of course the opiates is uh, opiate addiction is is obviously huge now here's a process that i've this is obviously just it's not for everybody but this is a process I've seen a lot of young people go to go through is high school um, you know start off with start experimenting with alcohol go to go to go to marijuana um, at some point be introduced to opiates um, through that um, yeah. and as they get older uh, opiates on the street are pretty expensive you know over time it costs you a lot of money and so what they'll do is they'll go to heroin to get a very similar effect mm-hmm. and and so that's like a trajectory that i've seen a lot of people go through is alcohol marijuana get introduced to opiates and then on to heroin okay. um, and so that's just uh and then um obviously it can look a lot it can look very very different but i'll tell you from my experience working with with teenagers and students is i found that people use for some common reasons one is 
uh, they're self-medicating. Right? They're, they're self-medicating themselves. And this is why we have to be very gracious. Like, this is why I think it's very important to be gracious because we all do stuff that works for us, you know? And so, um, man, if you are just struggling with anxiety or you just, you know, you are, um, you know, you are, you, you, for whatever, you just feel like you need to calm down, you need to relax, and you need to, you don't want to think about a trauma or you don't need to, you don't want to go think about your parents' divorce and, and you know, People do all types of things to self-medicate, and it might work for them for a little bit, and it might be manageable for a little bit, but that eventually that it's not sustainable. It's not a sustainable way to cope, but that's what starts it is they self-medicate, and they want to feel a certain way to escape. And so mm-hmm. we can't bring shame upon those people. I think we all understand that we all do things to try to help ourselves along, but that's just a, not a sustainable path that causes a lot of destruction. Um, another reason that people start using it in high school and college is they, it's a way of connecting. You know, it's it's just it's like simply just a way to connect and you know to make friends, to hang out with people. It's a common social thing, and again, you know, they they go into it with good intentions, not good intentions. They don't they don't go into it with negative intentions or bad intentions. They're not thinking about it, Mm -hmm. but because their desire to connect, or maybe they just have a hard time connecting with people. They don't have that whatever it is that helps people connect with each other. That a substance will help them feel like they can connect with others. Mm -hmm. So I've just seen so many of our young people start down this road because they're medicating themselves, trying to escape from trauma and pain, um, or they're trying to connect. So I just think it's important that a college ministry, recovery ministries, churches, we just remember to be very gracious because we all do things to try to help connect with each other. You know, coffee. How many times have we invited someone to go, (laughs) how many times have we invited someone to go, hey, go to coffee, because that's a way that we can connect with each other. And so we have to recognize, yeah, Yeah. it's not a healthy way of connection, and it's not a sustainable way of connection, but that's what's going on behind the scenes. So by offering grace and understanding and another place to connect is is really the best thing that we can do as we we work with teenagers and college students. So do you, um, with college students, do you... um, do they typically come into college already on the path toward addiction, um, or or do they become addicted to something in college? What's what's the typical? I'll just answer that from my perspective pretty briefly. I mean, it's all over the board. Okay. It's, it's it really is all over the board. However, typically speaking, statistically speaking, if you're going to develop the disease of addiction, like many of them, like I think it's like ninety percent. I'm I'm pulling this out of like a presentation I did like five years ago, so I'm not sure if that's but. Like 90% of people start before the age of 18, mm-hmm. right? So that doesn't mean that they have the disease of addiction at 16. That just means that pathway has started. Um, and so typically, in my experience, when someone can be diagnosed with the disease of addiction, it's more in the college or after, but the path started. Your brain gets arrested. So they say that, hey, if you started using at 15, that's when your brain started to get hijacked. And that's where that brain structure started changing. And so, um, so yeah, uh, typically you're starting, bef- you're, you're experimenting at least before the age of 18. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I was thinking about as Adam was uh, talking, I know that we've all heard the saying like the gateway drug is weed. But I personally believe in, you know, that trauma is actually yes. the gateway drug yes. uh, or, you know, just that gateway into the disease of addiction. So, you know, whether it be something that happened when a person was five years old, 12 years old, 13 years old, uh, 20 years old, you know, you just don't know. But some type of traumatic experience that, you know, everyone deals with trauma even in a different way. Um, and most of the time when something big and traumatic happens, uh, we try to put that to the back of our mind and we try to forget that or we try to um, numb it out. And so for some people, and especially a person who might have that disease of addiction, um, it it's just a numbing way, a way to try to forget it, a way to try to like just, you know, I just really think that trauma is uh, is the gateway drug. You know, we always hear, oh, we, you know, even I say, you know, I started out smoking weed, but I started out smoking weed because I was trying to numb something because I was trying to hide something. And so that might have been the, the, the you know, softer, you know, lighter drug. But I started smoking weed because of a traumatic experience that. Uh, happened to me when I was younger, you know, um, so, yeah. Best thing that's been said. 
That's the best thing that's been said. Yeah, it's tra trauma. That's why teaching emotional intelligence is so important for us as parents. Teaching, doing TBR training, which is a parenting style that deals with connection and attachment and trauma. You know, churches being emotionally healthy. You know, and these you know counseling, all these things because because that that's that that's it. Like and trauma. When we think about trauma, sometimes we think about just the war, the, the terrible, and it, it is. But it's not it's not necessarily that. There's right. there's a lot of things that that cause someone to, to, to develop the way they develop and need to need to escape. And um, so, yeah, that's mm -hmm. the best thing that's been said, in my and, opinion. And I like what you said. Trauma can look different for everyone. It could be some really big uh, event that happened. But for someone, uh, just a motorcycle running past here very, very loud, that can be traumatic for them. And we can't say what is traumatic for mm. another person. So, you know... Um, <sighs> It's deep. Is it is it fair to say, just listening to the two of you talk, that for many people the disease of addiction kind of is is uh, a coping mechanism to manage their life that then became unmanageable? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think we all have the ability to become addicted. You know, so I think like it's like the way I've always thought about it is everybody has that trigger. So yeah, I mean at some point you're using something to help manage yourself and manage whatever's going on around you or in you. Um, but eventually, if you, for a substance that is, we all have that trigger point. Mm -hmm. And so everybody's tolerance is at mm -hmm. different levels, right? So it might take me longer to hit that trigger than others, uh, but we all have that ability to hit that trigger. And one more question before we uh, move on to some, some other aspects of this. Um, but are people, um, are they, um, is the disease of addiction for a person usually specific to one or two um, substances, mm. or can, can is it is it just in, with any type of substance they could have become sure. addicted? Does that make sense? Yeah. I think a person can can become addicted across the board to. Is that what you're asking? Like, yeah, uh, sometimes we think like, is it just one or two drugs that a person can? Become yeah, in the addicted sense that we to? might say someone who who struggles with alcoholism mm. that that's right. well that's that's what's going to trigger right. the addiction is alcoholism. But then we we kind of yeah we don't think about all the. Right. You know where where uh, marijuana or something could be also something. So I, I just kind of wonder. It's a naive question in, in, in many ways. That like, is 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 addiction often specific to one drug rather than or one substance rather than to? A, a I think it can be two, three, four, five. Everything under the sun. Um, like I you know told you earlier. Like because uh, you know I can be triggered to you know easily go back to heroin. I, I I'm addicted to drugs and alcohol you know at the end of my uh run at the end of my active addiction i was using i just mentioned heroin but i was i was using whatever made me feel different mm -hmm. and it was like uh like if it, it was if it was an upper if it was a downer um you know i i used it just because it made me feel different and i they i forget they had a name for it back home but i forget what it was but a person can use like three or four drugs at the it was some kind of i forget whatever they called it but anyway um a person can be addicted to it's a fly hmm. that i need to beat up hold on okay <laughs> sorry but uh <laughs> um a person there, can yeah. be addicted to uh, multiple multiple drugs at once, and it's not one. I think that any of the drugs can lead back to using any of the drugs. If that makes sense. Yeah, that's good. Um, you can't edit this right. You can edit this right. <laughs> Get the hell of a swatting the fly. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I was trying to keep talking, but okay. Uh, so. Um, there's there's several more topics. I know we're kind of starting to get crunched for time, but one thing um, that, and I hope this makes sense, but but um, how does uh, God and spirituality play into a person's journey? So, I mean, I know it's often a part of the recovery, but even, I guess right now I'm interested in how does it play a part of the, the actual kind of in the midst of the, the, the darkness, um, a person's relationship with God, faith, whatnot. Does that make sense? Spiritual formation in the midst of that. Um, you look just like Michael Waldrop when he did this, by the way. Like now, now, now. <laughs> I trained him. I trained yeah. him. Yeah, Michael but he would never drink like coffee, you. though. I can never get him yeah. to drink coffee. Yeah. Um, everything, oh, everything, all everything good about Michael he got from, from me. You. Yeah. Really well, at least you're humble. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> um, so I, I mean, so speaking of humble, though, it's like we do this song every Wednesday, and the I Surrender song. 
and it's an opportunity for us to come to the throne of God and surrender our lives over to God. Uh, like, like, like Jasmine said, like our lives have become unmanageable, and we recognize that, and we go, hey, there is a God, we are not Him, and we surrender everything over to God. Um, so the position as, of disciples of Jesus, that's, our, that's everyone's position. That's what we have a saying to say, we're all in a recovery from something. Right, so like we're all having to surrender over our lives to God and put things at His throne and give Him things and, and try to let go of control. So of course you have that theological space that that helps drive recovery processes or whatever it might be. But I'll speak to the power of God's people. Um, you know, we have a saying at our church that love first. That's that's kind of our that's our tagline. You know, uh, that we love because God first loved us. Um, he loved us before we even knew we needed to be loved. And we had a speaker. I can't remember the speaker's name. It was a few years ago. You, Jasmine, you brought, you brought the speaker in, so maybe you can remember. But he talked about how important connection is to the recovery process. And he said, as a church, that's how you help. You know, but you, you, just, you, you continue to provide connection to people who are struggling. Because, because what connection does to the brain, the healing uh, properties of connection, the, the way that, that can... Um, that, that can fill what a substance was 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 filling, uh, connecting to each other, connecting to our God. Like that's what a church, that's what God's people can do. So when I think about just that aspect of it, as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, like we should. You have a campus ministry, having a campus ministry that say, hey, we're not going to shun this. We're not going to try to divide it. We're not going to shame. You know, we're going to go. We're going to keep loving you. Um, and they might not come to their senses right away, right? They might not. They might, but I guarantee you they're going to come back to the people who they feel loved and cared about when they do. Yeah. Right? Like, like I said, that prodigal son. So to me, the power of God working through God's people in, to help people in the recovery process is, is so key to, to what's happening here. Yeah. Don, our minister, will tell you that the recovery community has changed the DNA of our church. Mm. And, and I, that, that, there's so many reasons why that is, but... The, but Watch the recovery community help, you know, as, as we love on the recovery community, watch the recovery community help us start being more authentic, more honest, being able to reveal our own stuff. We just had a testimony from a guy who said, I started volunteering in the ministry because I got to share all of my, all of my junk and all of my sin, and they just were like, we love you. Like, we, we're, we're with you. And he's like, this is where I need to be. I need yes. to be in, this, in the recovery ministry. And he wasn't, he wasn't addicted to drugs or alcohol. It was something much different for him. So... Um, to me, that's the theology of surrender, but also the power of God working through His people um, for the recovery process is key. Mm -hmm. uh, mine would go to that surrender as well. You know, um, I told you, you know, I knew God my whole life. I knew of God, I raised in the church and everything like that. But, you know, um, I had become ashamed and I was afraid to talk to God because I felt like I had just sinned so much because I knew what was right but I did the opposite but um and then also you know for so long in my addiction I tried to be in control and I tried to play God but when you really come to surrender it's like you try every way that you possibly can you know you try to do it this way you try to do it that way and we have this picture that we put up uh, uh, right after that song that we play but it's like imagine you know a really big ocean where there's nothing but water you can't say see anything but water and then there's this hand and it's this person that looks like they're drowning uh, you know and all you see is this and their hand going up and like reaching up say God I've tried it every other way but now I'm drowning and I need your help so full mm -hmm. full total total surrender to God not just this part of me God um, that I think that I can give you and I'll let you handle but no all of me God help me and in this surrender I admit that I need help I admit that you are God, like he said, and I am not. And I admit that I need your help, God, something greater than me and also something greater than the disease of addiction um, or whatever. And so it's like God loved me enough. There is nothing because I, you know, uh, suffered with drug and alcohol, uh, substance abuse or whatever, you know, he still loves me. 
he still loves me. His love for me never changed. And it's like he welcomed me back with open arms and say, okay, daughter, you know, I'll help you. I want to help you. He just needs us to admit and to, to turn our will and to turn our lives over to him and then let him do what he does best uh, or whatever. But that surrender and true, total, complete surrender is huge. It's like very huge. And it's not easy. It's easier said than done, you know, because you can, you know, you can say, um, you know, okay, I surrender this over to you, God. But then, like, two days later, something might come up, and me, I'll be like, you know what? Okay, I can, I can. But then I have to keep reminding myself over and over again, like, no, I surrender. I let go. I let go, hmm. and I give you control. And so then I, you know, I might have to ask God, God, help me. I, I, I want to do this this way. I want to do But, no, I want you to live through me. I want you to help me. Show me the direction I, can, I need to go. Help me, oh, God. Hmm. So this is why discipleship to me is so yes, cool. you know because uh, I, I think about the from the prevention side of it how important good theology is because theology drives practice right and how important is that as we disciple these things into each other uh, yeah. like to disciple the idea that we're unashamed Romans one sixteen unashamed mm-hmm. to be right unashamed to admit that we need the power of God that saves right to yeah. say I need God yeah like. To be able to say that, that's not like, hey, I'm unashamed to say I need God, like like a boastful thing. It's like, hey, like, I'm broken. I'm like, I need God. Yes. And disciple that into each other at a young age to say, hey, it's like, okay, we're all going to fall short of the glory of God. Yeah. You know, and, and so you don't have to be ashamed. Mm-hmm. Of the, you know, why, why would we need the cross if it wasn't for? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, what, what, are we, what are we all about? If like, and so uh, the, 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 uh, to be discipling into each other the fact that nothing can separate us from the love mm-hmm. of God. And uh, that... Yeah, holy, pursuing holiness absolutely is part of discipleship, 100%, but not out of a works-based uh, mindset, yeah. but out of a relationship. When you're in a relationship, like, I don't, I don't clean the room so my wife will stay married to me. I clean the room because I'm married to my wife, mm-hmm. you know? And so that, to be discipling what, what it looks like to be in a relationship with each other and our God, I just think about how preventative that could be for people. So when they start feeling the shame, they start struggling with things, that they can open up quicker and our churches will be ready to receive them quicker because we've discipled this into each other. Uh, and, and so I, that, I just, I just, I could go on my soapbox, so I won't, but I'm just saying like <laughs> you when you're, when you're speaking, like this is why we disciple, this is why we should be discipling each other. Cause we're all discipling, so we're all discipling people, right? Well, we all are, but what kind of disciple are we making? Right. And what's powerful about what you are saying is that I can see that there would be a tendency in churches and ministries for the recovery ministry to be something other than the typical work of the church, right? But the, the way you're framing it is it's under the general umbrella of what's called for every Christian to surrender, every Christian to recognize their helplessness. He preached a message a few years back to our entire church. Something that we do, you know, we pass out, uh, this is our recovery room right here, but um, uh, the room that we have our recovery meetings in, but something that we do uh, every week is we pass out one day chips, surrender Mm -hmm. chips. And this is like, so a person who uh, suffers from a substance abuse disorder might come up and say, I surrender and I, you know, I need help. Or um, it can be a situation. Like it can be like, we say we're a church that everybody's in recovery from something. So yes, and that's one of the things that I really loved about this church and really I just fell in love with this church is because I didn't feel like an outcast, Hmm. you know? Um, Like I am a person in, uh, you know, recovery and I come here in a treatment program, but people accepted me and loved me because it would be like we're all in recovery from something. Yeah, yours is this, but then mine might be this. It could be uh, gluttony. It can be control. It can be anger. It can be it can be whatever. So everybody is recovering from something. And then when it comes from that, you help that person feel even just more comfortable, Hmm. you know, and just more loved and more accepted. Because if a person feels like an outcast or if they feel like that someone is looking down on them or something, it's going to, you know, that trust level and just that comfort level is going to be. We have um, like 500, 600 people pick up a chip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm talking about from our whole church, from older people to younger people. And you didn't know what people were coming up there for, but it was it was like the most powerful, 
powerful. I think we might have almost ran out of chips or something oh, like that. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was really good. But so uh, um, for a ministry like ours, campus ministry, if I'm hearing what you guys are saying, like one of the ways that we can be uh, um, create a place that's more open and more welcoming and more helpful and supportive is for, for us to, to I like how you said it, we're all in recovery from something. So for us to not just recognize that, but, but verbalize that a lot more. Um, and, and what else can a ministry or individual Christian, and I have, um, I do want to come back and ask you some questions about walking with, as like a friend of someone who's in the disease of addiction. But since y'all start talking about your church, just as a ministry or a community of faith, what can we do to, to better support and help people who are journeying with the disease of addiction. So you have mentioned yeah. So well, first thing, if I was if I were you, I would get connected with recovery programs in your area, and therapists and people who can help inform you. So that's like like and get connected and, so, and let the recovery community help inform you. So have the recovery community come in and recovery experts and therapists go, hey, here's what you can do and here's how that could look. So that's the that's the best thing because they're going to be able to help give you a kind of a, a blueprint for what it looks like but general things being a place a safe place of connection doing what you just said that would be great have an atmosphere of open confession right to be able to confess with each other pray with each other be healed as scripture would say right so to have that just a natural like a natural rhythm in what you guys do um, where it's not uncommon right to have a place where hey it's like hey this is something I'm struggling with and to be met with support and be met with grace and to be met with you know ways forward and so that's why I say getting connected with the recovery community is important because if you're opening the door and say, hey, we want to hear your stuff, but you're not ready to help support mm. them, you don't want to do that all on your own. Like that's the one thing that we learned from a church is like we don't want to be the sponsors. We're, we, can't, we, we can be mentors. We can be spiritual friends, spiritual mentors, but we're going to let, the re, we're going to let people in recovery and we're going to let the recovery community and experts drive what we do. So that would be the best thing for you to do is just get connected with your, your local community, recovery so what community. So what are some... Uh, um, uh, Organizations that that help uh, with recovery that might be in different communities. Well, I mean, treatment I, centers. Yeah, yeah, tra- there's treatment centers treatment in here. There's treatment centers, and I, I got to believe there's got to be lots of treatment centers in Auburn. Uh, I mean, there's AA groups everywhere. You can go on the website, and you know, there's open meetings. Mm-hmm. So I've always encouraged church leaders to go to meetings, like go to open meetings, and they'll welcome you in if it's an open meeting. You tell them why you're there. You're honest why you're there, and that's a great way to start learning recovery language learning recovery mm-hmm. principles, you know, learning, you know, becoming a, a friend to in, in recovery. So, like, these are, like, steps that you and your leadership can take. Um, so just just Google. Google treatment centers in Auburn. You'll find them. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. They're there. They're there. 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then they'll even tell you on the website if it's an open meeting. Um, it, it'll have, like, a, a OM next to it, or it'll say something. Right, it'll so uh, if it's an open meeting, that that's a great piece of advice to just go and sit in the meeting and then you know uh just conversate with people in recovery um another thing i would say is sometimes you know when you're having these meetings don't just let it be one-sided as to where you know you have people coming to you and they're just telling you all about their life sometimes just start off with you you know and your story and maybe some of the things that you you know might be struggling with so that they that'll set uh you know, help them to feel safe. Like, okay, you know, they are going through something too. So not just, and then you all can support each other mm-hmm. through that. Of course, we know that, you know, uh, uh, you know, you're the minister or the, you know, whatever, but sometimes just helping, just setting that safe um, mm-hmm. environment sometimes is just by not letting them just feel like they're the bad person or like they're the, you know, outcast, but just trying to just kind of get on their level with them. Meet them on your on their turf. So you you guys are probably on in on the Auburn campus, uh, right know, next to it. Right yeah. next to it. But what I guess what I'm saying is, do your ministry on the Auburn campus as best you. I don't know how that all works, mm-hmm. but you know, to go to them, you know, and meet them on their turf because, you know, as a church, it's if it's if it's always on our on our church on our turf kind of on our comfort level then we're already in a position of power over them we're already in a position of discomfort Mm -hmm. for them it's like no we need as christians to be willing to put ourselves in a discomfort be discomfort go to their turf and go hey we're going to go and be jesus that's why theology is so important right that 
like that we are a sent people. Mm. So if we believe we're a sent people, we're not going to expect the people to come to us. We're going to go to them. So go to them on their campus where they're at to do their to have these conversations. And then they just might not even come. Uh, you know, some people, like if you just go to them and they see that you're making an intentional effort to come and to talk to them and to care for them, that's like, oh, he came to see me. He can, even if it's just like a, hey man, how you doing? And they know who you are, give them a card and then go back like maybe two weeks later or a week later, just, hey, you know, sometimes that sticks out to a person mm. and every time you might not get a person to come to your ministry event, but take the church to them. Um. Oh, so if someone, if if there's someone who's watching this who, who's starting to suspect that you know maybe that they have a problem, um, what do you recommend them do? Who do they reach out to? How do they go about making it open sure. uh, to others? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there are always um, meetings, uh, and there are churches, and there are counselors. Um, but I would say, you know, reach out because I don't know what the situation might be if they know someone in recovery or um, if they felt it was a need that they needed to go to a treatment center, then maybe can, they can just make the first call. But there are plenty of hotlines. I know here in Georgia and I'm sure everywhere if they Google hotlines and there are uh, peer recovery coaches that can, um, you know, that they can just talk to and get whatever they're dealing with out and then um, and I can maybe give a few of those resources to you later uh, but I'm sure they have them where you are as well but uh, whether it be a family member just a trusted source you know uh, it's just a trusted source and say okay I have a problem I need help but I'm gonna tell you sometimes that might not that'll happen but that might not just happen so easy like that Um, I wish it was that easy, but you know, sometimes it might take a family member or a trusted friend that might have to kind of help them to recognize. Let's talk about that. So, let's uh, let's say that somebody is beginning to worry that their friend or family member, or roommate, whatever, might have a problem. What do you recommend uh, for them? Like, how do you begin? Um, Approaching that topic, how do you begin to navigate? Are you enabling? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you not enable and all that? Um, so I know that's a big topic. But yeah. What is some? I, I think talk to talk to a counselor. Mm-hmm. Talk to someone who can give you some some help because it's very it can be very very tricky to, yeah. to navigate that. But you know, generally speaking, you know the parents. When you think about someone who needs help, you got to start thinking about the people who are most influential in their life. Mm-hmm. They're going to be the ones who are going to be able to remove things. You know, they're going to be able to be the ones who add things. They'll be all the ones who are going to be able to help that person start feeling more of the consequences and help that person become more aware that they need help. You know, friends, of course, can be influenced, but a lot of times friends don't have the friends don't have that kind of influence to be able to, to help remove some kind of consequences. The best thing that I've seen friends do is, yeah, they just call people, they call them out in a loving way to say, hey, like I, I'm seeing. I have. I care about you. I love you. I think you have. I think you have something that needs to be addressed here. And see, I, at Auburn, they have a counseling center. I'm sure. Yeah. So if you're an Auburn student and your friend, like, just encourage them to go to the counseling center. I had so as a school counselor myself, it was the most beautiful thing to see the friends bring their friends into the count to the counseling center. That so many people got help that way. So I think if you're on the Auburn campus. You and you just say hey, I love you. I think you have. A, I think there's something here that you should you should think about talking to someone about. I'll go with you to the counseling center. So that's what I think friends do. Mm-hmm. I think parents and adults. You have you have to really navigate where you're enabling and where you're not, and that's very tricky. And so that's where you need you need to walk alongside someone who can help you with that. So one thing that comes up uh, sometimes uh, with students who begin to worry that a friend has a problem that you know they're. They're close to this person. They've seen them at their worst, and that person has talked to them about their problems. Yeah. And you can see how there becomes to be an issue of am I breaking trust? Am I breaking confidence to then go and talk to me or a counselor or even go to the person's parents? So how do you how do you navigate that if you begin to see somebody on a very destructive path, and they are in denial or they're not taking the steps that they maybe are saying they're going to take? Um, do do y'all still feel bound like I'm not going to go talk to, you know? A minister about it, and I'm not going to go talk to their parents about it. Because in some cases, these are 18-year-olds, you know. So, depending on what I see, if it seems like 
you know, the person could harm themselves and it's just really gotten to a very, very bad point in their lives. Because I love them, regardless of our friendship, because I love them um, and I want to be a friend to them, I will mention it to their family or see ways. I won't just watch it because to me, the disease of addiction is life or death. And so there's been so many overdoses and so many people dying. I'm not going to like sit back and watch a person kill themselves or what slowly kill themselves or whatever. So if I see that it's getting to that point because I love you so much. I'm going to talk to your parents. I'm going mm. to, you know, his wife, Susan, said something about when uh, this is going to touch on something that you were talking about with an enabling. But I'm going to help that person to to get the help that they need. I'm not going to just and it's like raising the bottom, you know, uh, you know, you hear that saying, oh, we'll just wait till that person hit rock bottom. No, because you every every rock bottom is different. But what if that rock bottom is death? So I'm not going to just wait until a person dies and say, oh, well, I would have, could have, should have, because hmm. it's too late. But, you know, sometimes you just have to do it. And it's a love thing. It's not like I'm not your friend thing or whatever. No, it's because I love you. I'm going to try to help you get help. And then say on the other side of this, that person, they might get upset with you in that moment. Hmm. But that's okay but you have to be ready just have some thick skin and be ready to just accept that and deal with that but then once they get through and get the help that they need then they'll say thank you for saving my life you know what i'm saying mm. that's what i look at it as life and death so like if 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 you're seeing a friend with a problem that whether it's uh drinking and driving and you get concerns about that or just the mm -hmm. destructive spiral that you have to um, use a thick skin, but just be, be willing and understanding that they might get mad at you, but you, you do need to start talking to people. You do need to uh, reach out to their family mm -hmm. to protect them because it is life and death. Yes. I mean, that's best case scenario for sure. I would just encourage that student. They don't have to do that alone. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. So go to a counselor first. You don't have to break confidentiality. Talk to a counselor and go, hey, here's my friend. How can I best talk to them about it. That's good. Right? So they don't have to do it by themselves. And then the other thing I would just say this is I would want to release you from any guilt or shame if that goes bad. You know, if you 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 do it and it just all goes bad and it's like like you did your best. And I would also want to release people from guilt or shame if they didn't say anything and the person did die. Like at the end of the day, if that's not their fault. Mm -hmm. Right. And so yes, best case scenario they do they would absolutely intervene and I would hope and pray that they would. But let's let's release them from blaming themselves if they don't. Mm -hmm. um, so, as we close, is there anything that you would want to say to a ministry or to individuals? Anything you want them to know better? Anything you, that we haven't covered that you think uh, Christians or churches might be prone to do that they shouldn't, or that they should do and they'd be prone not to do it? Anything you want to share? We've covered a lot. Well, I'll go first. Then I then I want to throw no matter what over to you. Yes. Oh, that's what I'm going to ask uh, you that and let you let you end. Um, so to me, recovery ministry is one of the most relevant ministries that, you're, that a church could be involved with. Um, the disease of addiction numerically is so huge. Um, it's effect, it affects everybody, every race, every age, every social economic uh, status. Um, and the recovery community is a community that is ready to accept a higher power. Mm -hmm. is ready to, and, and so it's a great ministry to be a part of. Um, so I would just say to all churches, any church, like this is one of the best ministries you could ever, ever enter into um, as far as churches go. And then the second thing, it's, I don't want to repeat myself over and over again, but having that culture, discipling in that culture of a church that is, that is open and grace-filled, that is ready to be able to receive the hurt and the broken. I mean, isn't that why Jesus came? Didn't see Jesus come before the sick, so I'm not sure what, you know, let's remember. Um, so, um, yeah, just to continue to disciple that into us. So whether you have an overt recovery community or not, you have people in your church who struggle with a disease of addiction. That's like, awesome. you just do. Uh, and so, and if you don't know anybody at your church, you have to ask yourself the question, why do they not feel safe talking about this? Mm -hmm. what's, what's going on? So uh, whether you have an overt ministry or not, that discipling and changing the culture of your church so people can be open and honest, uh, that to me is, is really important. Thank you. All right. So no matter what, you're supposed to... And anything else. Oh, and anything else. Yeah. I think I'm just going to just speak directly to uh, if there's anybody who's watching this who 
uh, might be suffering with uh, the disease of addiction and, you know, don't know which, which way the tur to turn um, and wants a better way. You might be scared. You might be lonely. You might be angry. You might be hurt. You might be ashamed. You might be guilty or whatever. But I just want you to know that there is a better way for you that there is a better way. It does get better. It doesn't stay like this. So I wanna encourage you to reach out for help. Uh, find someone to talk to, whether it be a family member, a counselor, um, because Jesus loves you no matter what. It's nothing that you have done, absolutely nothing that you have done or could do that would uh, 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 change his love for you. He loves you so very much. He's welcoming you with open arms. You are forgiven no matter what. what. You are accepted in the body of Christ no matter what. And guess what? It can get better and recovery is possible for you no matter what. Don't give up. Don't give in. Keep moving forward and just know that I love you. I haven't even met you, but I love you no matter what. All right. God bless. All right. Thank you. Uh, any, any resources like, I mean, that you'd point people to websites, videos, podcasts, books, something. I mean, just if you've got anything and then we'll be done. I, I would, as far as a, rec the Bible is the number one book. <laughs> Go to the book. That's the big book. All right. <laughs> but then also. We're going to start reading that this uh, year. For someone brand new in recovery, I would uh, recommend uh, the 12 and 12. It's uh, 12 steps, 12 traditions. And it just, mm. it breaks down uh, and it's. If you want to go that route, it breaks down the 12 steps and the 12 traditions of um, an anonymous program. But I just love it and I live by it. Awesome. What about, do you know of a resource that would help people um, kind of um, see kind of inside the life of someone struggling with uh, substance abuse? Uh, Does that make sense? No. Like a document, doesn't make oh, sense? Oh, a documentary. Like a documentary or a movie that you think portrays it really well. Oh. I don't know. Do, do you know? Enough the top of my head. Okay. I've seen them. But well, I we'll end on Adam not having an answer. Yeah. Yeah. And if we think of um, something, <laughs> like say in the next day or two, maybe we could just yeah, send we'll it and in, you can we'll roll it, it in the show the notes. Yeah, I'll have my you staff do that. Show Antoine Fisher? Yes. The movie Antoine yeah. Fisher? That's, uh, that's, that's more than just talking about addiction. That's a good, that talks about tra trauma and all kinds of stuff. But I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Well, we'll f if, if we find it, we'll put it, we'll send it out. I appreciate yeah. you guys. Uh, yeah. Thank you for, for sharing such powerful hey, thank you, uh, wisdom and sharing your stories. And Thank uh, you for having us. Yeah.